Uh, we're back today in our book, uh, 1 Corinthians, and so I'd like you to turn there if you would. It's a blessing to uh, be together in the Word. It's a blessing to do the things that saints have done since the Lord uh, departed for heaven and waits to come and return. Last week we were uh, very blessed. If you were here, you know uh, we were blessed to hear a great message from our youth director, Jason Sandroff, out of 2 Timothy. Uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful opportunity for him to share his heart with you and also an opportunity for you to see the quality of teaching which goes on each week with our students. I have been blessed to uh, be able to interact with Jason over now a number of years to hear him teach both at camp and in odd places where we end up teaching at camp all the way to uh, in the youth room and now here in the pulpit. And it's been a huge encouragement to our students and discipleship is going on there so you can thank the Lord for that blessing. Previous week we worked our way through our continuing study verse by verse through 1 Corinthians all the way through chapter 4 verse 9 is where we ended up. And I'd like to read the section really which extends uh, all the way through the end of chapter 4. And Paul is summing up his admonition as we said before. He's going to get very personal with this church in, in Corinth. He's going to talk about pride. He's going to talk about attitudes so that the problem of disunity and faction can be remedied. So Paul has a, a point to his uh, direct teaching to them and to his reproof of them. And so we're going to see that today as we close, try to close out this chapter perhaps. Uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 6. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. Uh, you can find that in the chair in front of you. You can also just read along in your copy. I'll give you some verse cues to keep us together. Um, starting with the words, now these things. So verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against another. Verse 7. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Verse 8, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. Verse 9, for I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You are distinguished, but we're without honor. Verse 11, to this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless. Verse 12, and we toil, working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world and the dregs of all things, even until now. Verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Verse 15, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would, have, you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Verse 16, therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Verse 17, for this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Verse 18, now... Some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, verse 19. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I shall find out, not with the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Verse 21, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, and a spirit of gentleness? Let's stop right there. Now, as Paul sums up his teaching to the church uh, on this subject of unity, he revisits this issue of attitude, particularly as it relates to pride. 
And as we said last time, perhaps it can be said that this attitude of pride was the source of all the other problems that they struggled with in Corinth. And we're going to see throughout the two letters, their pride is mentioned again and again. They gloried, they were puffed up, they boasted, they were vain, they were self-centered. It's a real problem, and so Paul is dealing with it. And in these first four chapters, we've seen that their pride has really manifested itself in their human wisdom. They were allowing their personal opinions to polarize the church. They had a random set of standards, and they were using them to evaluate or exalt or debase, whatever the case may be, their pastors. And we're going to see it again in chapter 5, verse 2, where Paul is addressing the fact that God wants a pure church, but immoral, immorality was there inside the church, and so uh, they weren't mourning about it, they were arrogant. We're going to see it again in chapter 11, as they were taking the Lord's Supper, and everybody's running ahead and grabbing stuff for themselves and not waiting on others, just singing about themselves. We're going to see it in chapter 14, where it talks about what's going on in the church, everybody has a word, everybody has a, a prophecy, everybody has something to say, and everybody's standing up and talking out of order, and and just disturbing the whole thing. So we just kind of see this, this attitude there, this arrogant, self-centered attitude there all the way through the, the, the uh, book, which is why I say I think pride really was the source of all their issues, perhaps the source of all sin in general, because pride, as we said before, is exalting your own will above the Lord's, and uh, that really is the ultimate form of pride, to put your will before His. So, pride's manifesting itself in a terrible way. We're going to see it again and again. Paul had to deal with it very firmly. And as we saw last time, he really calls them out because when pride and worldly foolishness start manifesting themselves in the church, things really go downhill quickly. Now let's look at our first uh, transition verse that really briefly we looked at last time. Uh, it's going to be in verse 6. It really ties uh, this next very direct passage to the previous topics. Look at verse 6 if you would. Now these things, brethren, and so once again he just kind of infer, affirms that he's speaking to believers, he's talking about people to, with whom he considers himself uh, equal on the road to uh, glory, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against another. When he says in these things, uh, now these things, he's just referring back to everything he said since chapter 3, verse 1, and we're not going to go over that. When he began really to discuss himself and Apollos and really diagnose this disease of disunity. In other words, I've been giving you principles, that's what he's saying, of how you should behave in the church. And uh, so in verse 6 he says, listen, everything I've said to you I've used myself, I've used Apollos, although they have universal application, I'm applying them to us so that you'll learn how to act and solve this problem of disunity at the same time. And then he says this, he says, you may learn not to exceed what's written. In other words, as you deal with us and with everyone that will follow us, you have these principles from the Word of God. Uh, so don't bring in your worldly experience, don't bring in the flesh, just think and do what's written there and you're going to begin to minimize your problems. And we saw ultimately... The problem is pride. So Paul says at the end of verse 6, he says, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against another. And that word arrogant is just to puff up, to be absorbed with yourself, to be wrapped up in self-importance. To puff up is to be, uh, Paul says, uh, to be in sin. Paul says, I use this of myself in Apollos' illustrations. And you remember these as we, as we bounce off of them. Chapter 3, verse 6, he says, we plant or water, but neither one is anything. God gives the increase. Uh, Paul says in uh, verse, chapter 3, verse 22, he says, we belong to you. And so in uh, counter-distinction to the way the church was approaching this whole thing, Paul says, listen, this is what I've told you. Uh, we're galley slaves, we're under rowers and house managers, chapter 4, verse 1, of the Word of God. And to the extent that we do that last one well, we can be counted faithful, chapter 4, verse 2. So Paul says, listen, don't be arrogant on behalf of one against another. I'm giving you this so that you understand I'm applying it to us so that you can see and may, not learn, and may learn to not to exceed what's written. And that's a great principle with a lot of application. And the standard is really don't come up short. Uh, don't go beyond 
that standard of what the word says. And in the case with Paul and the Corinthian church, in this area of evaluation and this area of esteeming their own opinions. Now we saw for Romans chapter 12, verse 3 and following, uh, that God has set a certain limit on self-esteem. Let no one think more highly of himself than he ought, but think of himself according to the measure of faith he's received. Uh, just leave it there. That's the limit of self-esteem. Associate with those who are what you think are beneath you. Don't be uh, unwilling to do that. So we saw that in Romans. And, and on this pride issue, which is really the basis for all their problems, Paul's going to ask a few questions in verse 7, and he's really going to get personal in verses 8 through 13. And these questions really will have obvious answers, and they're not going to be very flattering. Now look at verse 7. Here's the first one. For who regards you as superior? And we saw last time, uh, the question is, who's currently regarding you as better than someone else? And the obvious answer Paul wants divisive people to see is, you are. That's what he wants them to know. You're the one who's doing this. You're evaluating yourself. Their personal evaluation of, your, of themselves. Now, follow Paul's thoughts as we get to this next section. Because in his mind he's thinking, because you think so highly of yourself and your own opinions, particularly about Paul and Apollos and Peter and their verbal either uh, affirmation or defamation of their character, uh, what part of your self-evaluated superior abilities, in other words, you've concluded that you have these abilities and you can come up with this, uh, this random way to, uh, uh, to evaluate and this random way to give your opinions out, he says, what part of those self-evaluated superior abilities, and I put that in, in uh, quotation marks, did you come up with on your own? The whole thing is strictly conceit. It only involves your own imagination. You invented this whole thing about yourself. And even if you have some abilities, he says, here's the next question, what do you have that you didn't receive? And the answer Paul's looking for, of course, is nothing. They don't have anything that they didn't receive. No one of us do. And he saw, uh, we saw from some cross-referencing, whether it's money or intellect or ability, all those things come from the Lord. Spiritual guess, whatever it is that you can do, uh, those come from the Lord. And so Paul's point is this. Whatever it is that you have or whatever it is that you can do, beloved, you've received it from somewhere else. And so Paul is calling the Holy Spirit to witness in their own hearts, convicting, uh, witnessing of the truth of his questions. And he comes to this last one. And if you did receive it, so in other words, when you come to the right conclusion, the correct understanding about yourself, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And here is the crux of the issue, okay? Because there's only one obvious truthful answer that can come there. Pride. If you did receive it, why do you boast if you had not received it? And pride's the issue. So we saw that Paul wasn't done now. He uses some sarcasm here in just the next couple verses to really draw out the ones who were causing trouble. And it's usually just a few that keep the strife and the contention going. So he's going to use sarcasm and he's going to provide an avenue for the Holy Spirit to go to work in conviction. So look at verse 8 with me if you would. Verse 8. You are already filled. You've already become rich. You've become kings without us. Now Paul's not looking at the obvious and just saying it to them. This is who you are. Wow, congratulations. Okay, that's not the direction he's going with this. Indeed, he says, I wish you had become kings. And what's implied? Everything else, too. Filled, rich, so that we might also reign with you. So Paul's being very sarcastic. You've got a really high opinion of yourself, he says. You guys are really something. And every time he describes them, he means the opposite. Already filled, Paul says, he, you know, you think you've arrived at fullness, you're satisfied, but really you're fleshly and infantile in your understanding of the word, and you have worldly habits and practices that you've brought into the church. You've already become rich, Paul says. You think you have everything you need, you think you're rich in spiritual gifts, rich in maturity, you don't need me, you don't need anybody else, but the way you're handling this issue of faction proves you're anything but rich in maturity or anything else. Then the middle part of the verse, you have become kings without us. You're acting like you're believers in the millennial reign. 
You think you're on a throne. You're calling the shots. You're there, but we aren't. Very sarcastic. So there's a big problem. Prideful, improper self-evaluation. Paul says the last part of uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 8. I wish that you had become kings, he says, so that we also might reign with you. I wish you did reign. You know why? Because if you were reigning, we'd be reigning. And we wouldn't be dealing with all these problems you've created in your, with your pride, your selfishness, and your fleshliness. And if you really were dealing with everything like it should be dealt with, I wouldn't be writing you this difficult letter. And you guys wouldn't be polarizing the church with your worldly opinions. You can kind of see all Paul's, what's going on in Paul's thought life as he uses this sarcasm to bring them to repentance. So here's Paul. You know, he's bleeding for the cause of Christ. He's got the marks of the mission on him. He's enduring mockery, disrespect, persecution. Here are all these conceited Corinthians. They've got it all figured out. Uh, so Paul continues to use this very direct tone with them. And we saw that Paul did some comparison here between what's going on in the church and what's supposed to be going on according to the example of the apostles. And it's very simple to understand this now that you know the flow of the passage. So look at verse 9. For I think, he says, God has exhibited us apostles last of all. As men condemned to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Stop right there. Here's the first comparison. You can find this in your notes. We're last, not first. Just in case you hadn't noticed, Paul says, I know you think you're ruling and you're rich and you're full, but we're last, not first. Number two, we're as men condemned to death. We're not rich, we're not kings, we're not full. And as we saw this lesson that he was teaching them, it's so fundamental the crown only comes after the cross. That's the principle, isn't it? The crown only comes after the cross. Matthew 19, 27, we saw this last time. We saw Jesus interacting with his disciples, and they said, Lord, we've left everything. We've left houses and land and family and all that stuff. What's there for us? Because we've done all that. And, and you know, he confirmed to them, listen, if you're with me to the end, you're going to physically rule in the millennial kingdom on 12 thrones. And so Paul just, uh, or Jesus just affirmed what Paul is uh, kind of implying to this Corinthian church. It's not time for ruling right now. Right now we're like criminals, and everyone's watching us being led away to death. And then thirdly, we saw they were appointed unto death. Everybody's watching. We're a spectacle. That's really the issue. We're a spectacle. Even the angels are watching this spectacle. The church should be exalted. Those that love Christ should be exalted. This isn't the time. Why? Because the master wasn't exalted when he was here the first time, was he? He was put to death. Despise, spit on. We're going to see that in just a minute. So we're a spectacle. Even the angels are watching. Now look at verse 10. Paul goes back to sarcasm. He says this. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're prudent in Christ. Paul says, you know, we go about our ministry. What do you guys think about us? Same thing the world thinks about us. 1 Corinthians 1.23, remember we looked at that. But we preach Christ crucified, remember Paul said, to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. That's what the world thinks. That's what unredeemed Gentiles think of us. And as we saw last week, Acts 17, they called Paul, uh, the Pharisees called Paul a babbler. What's this babbler have to say? The seed picker. Pharisees thought the disciples from Acts 5 were a bunch of ignorant, redneck fishermen, unlearned, untaught, uncultured, unfit for ministry. That's how they viewed the disciples. We're fools for Christ's sake. And that's what you think of us. So fourthly, in the world's eyes, what they teach is foolishness so that in that respect, they're fools. And the foolishness of God is wiser than men, of course, as Paul told us. You think you're rich, but we're fools. We're, that's the right attitude. We are fools, Paul says. Fools for Christ's sake. But you're prudent, he says. Phronimos, the adjective, mindful of one's interests, taking care of yourself, having it all together. 
That's the church's attitude. It's all wrong, Paul says. We're fools, but you're prudent. 2 Corinthians 11.23, Paul talks about himself. He says, I've been beaten with rods, beaten with lashes, dangerous, he says, all over the place, hungry, cold, exposed, worried about the church, worried about sinners, weak, nearly stoned to death, despised in city after city. Uh, he had a thorn in the fresh, some kind of serious health problem. Remember, he went to Lystra, he went to Iconium, he went to Derby, Antioch, Pisidia. Most of those places, he's chased out or thrown out. Wicked men followed him sometimes from place to place, causing trouble in the next place so they could get him tossed out of that city. But Paul says, you know, you Corinthians, you're wise and strong and you're honored, you're dignified, you've got it all together. He just makes this point with sarcasm. Next thing we see going on in Corinth compared to what should be going on, according to the example of the apostles, we're weak, but you're strong. Asthenes, we are impotent, we're feeble, without strength. And in some ways we, are like, we really are like that, although nobody really wants to look at themselves in that way as without strength. Everybody wants to be strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, as Paul is talking about his weakness, he says, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Verse 10, therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distress, with persecutions. I'm well content with distresses, Paul says, for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Because whatever good that happens, it's God that does it anyway. He's the one that perfects that weakness and makes it into a strength. But you, of course, are kuros. You're mighty. You're powerful. Paul says, according to your own faulty self-examination, you're a force to be reckoned with. And then he just keeps on going at the end, to the end of verse 10. He just keeps on going. You're distinguished, he says, but we are without honor. Paul says, you're highly regarded. Uh, you, uh, you regard yourself and each other very highly. He illustrates that point, and we're going to get all this. I'm using Corinthians to illustrate Corinthians, but it's just, it's a recurring theme. And so Paul continues to bring it up. He's, he talks about himself, and he gets really personal about the way the church looks at him. For we're not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. So in other words, you've got people in the church thinking they're pretty, pretty much all that, as we can kind of see in the verses we just read. Paul's going to go on with it as we get into 2 Corinthians. So we're not doing what you're doing. You think that you're, you've got it all together and you're com comparing yourselves with yourselves. And then he says, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're without understanding. You think you're distinguished, but you regard us as if we were without honor. That's the next thing that's the right, the right attitude. They were the least esteemed. There's men that are a spectacle, he said earlier. That's the correct attitude, Paul says. That's where we are, the least esteemed. Let you catch up there on notes. That's the proper attitude. Now, as you get to verse 11, the next word really describes the apostles. I'm just going to kind of sum it up because he goes through a couple things and we don't have to touch on all of them because they all really are summed up, I think, in this word as, uh, it looks at, as he looks at the, the apostles and their attitude. The apostles' situation really could be summed up as afflicted. Afflicted. Now, read verse 11 with me, if you would. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. Now, that kind of sums up this affliction that Paul understands is his life. That's kind of the sum of his life. Of course, he had joy. He had uh, rejoicing in Christ. He had great fellowship uh, inside the body of believers. 
But this is how he could sum up, really, the course of his life. And Paul comments on that in 2 Corinthians 4. In verse 7, he says this. He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, this marvelous treasure of salvation, this presence of the Spirit of Christ in us, so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God will, and not, will be of God and not of ourselves. In other words, as the Holy Spirit does the work, you understand, as you see whatever it is that I do, it's God at work inside of me. Because we're, it's an earthen vessel. It's, it's flawed. It's, it's uh, temporary. We live in this body, this flesh, which is not perfect and desires still to do the things that the old man liked to do. So we hold this treasure in earthen vessels. Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way. And so there's that word really that sums up everything we've looked at just a minute ago. But not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. So we're having some trouble. Uh, we're, we're having to struggle a little bit. We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. So in spirit, we're not beat down. He says that we're perplexed. We don't understand all that's going on. We don't understand why it's got to be this way temporarily for us. But we're not despairing. In other words, we haven't given up hope. We still know that this is where the Lord wants us. Persecuted, but not forsaken. In other words, I'm going through difficult time. Uh, some are bringing to bear difficult times on me, but I'm not forsaken. The Lord, I don't turn to the Lord and say, why are you letting this happen to me? Where are you? Paul says. Struck down, but not destroyed. I mean, sometimes the blows are pretty heavy, Paul says, but I'm not destroyed. I'm still there. I'm still doing what the Lord wants me to do. Always, verse 10, caring about in the body the dying of Christ so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in my body. In other words, this is how it was for Christ. This is what it looks like in me. And so it manifests Christ's glory as I do it. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. In fact, this is a recurring thing for me, Paul says. I go from town to town. I'm delivered over for, to death. I think I'm going to die. I was stoned almost to death. I got a vision of heaven. We, we'll look at that later. Uh, I was tossed out. I was let out of the city in a basket so people wouldn't kill me. Uh, we understand this, Paul says. Constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So whether we live or die... Christ is manifest. And if it's a hard time for me, Paul says, it's okay. Verse 12, so death works in us, but life in you. And that sums up Paul's life. Here are these arrogant Corinthians with their self-evaluation coming in as all A's on the report card. We're doing great. We're dignified. We are rich. We're ruling. We're full. A, 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 A. Paul says, wow, that's amazing. Because that's not my life at all. 2 Corinthians 4, 15. He goes on. This is amazing. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we don't lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is always being renewed day by day. For, now mark this, okay, how Paul refers to this trouble he is always facing. For momentary, here it is, momentary light affliction. Now you just read what I just read, right? I think any, a tenth of that we would consider heavy affliction, wouldn't we? If any of those had happened to us even one time, and that's a huge difference between the church in the West and the church in the East and the Far East, isn't it? Because it happens over and over, and they're crushed but not destroyed and beaten down, right? And bearing in their body the mark of Christ, aren't they? And so Paul understands this, doesn't he? And he says, listen, it's a momentary light affliction. And it's here, he says, to produce for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. To the extent that we handle that the way Paul handles it, is to the extent where we'll bear, bear glory to the Lord forever through all eternity that we wouldn't be able to do had we not gone through it. 
while we look not at the things which are seen. So in other words, my eyes are not fixed on my immediate circumstances and whether they're up or down. But at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So when Paul says then in 1 Corinthians 4.11, to this present hour, he says, we're both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, and are homeless. In other words, he says this, if there's a kingdom and everybody's rich and full, we haven't seen it yet. And that by itself should shut off all the channels of the prosperity gospel, shouldn't it? If Paul can say, if there's a kingdom and we're all supposed to be rich and we're all supposed to be full and everything's supposed to be great, I haven't seen it yet. And if we're supposed to be prudent and strong, that's not been our experience up till now. Because we're roughly treated. That's associated with the trimming of vines and the pruning of trees. That's the word association. But for Paul, he uses it like this. We're really cut back, literally. We're really beat up. It has to do with the giving of verbal blows and physical blows there, as Paul uses it. A combination of wearing the apostles out with both, verbal and physical. Verse 12, he says this, And we toil, he says, working with our own hands. Listen, this is a great indictment by itself on this Corinthian church. You know what? There was so much faction and people polarizing the church with their opinions that Paul never took support from the church in Corinth. Did you know that? He made his own living and took care of the church. And we're going to talk about that later. That's not how it was supposed to be, but that's what he had to do. This was so much opinion, so much polarizing, so, much, so many experts who knew what they were supposed to do, right? So Paul never took, a, took any kind of support from them. Paul says, we've been beaten up, we don't have a home, we no dwelling place, we work with our hands to provide support, and up to right now, we hunger, thirst, and we don't have proper clothing. That's our lot. But you're rich, and you're full, and you're reigning as kings. All sarcasm, sarcasm, sarcasm. Now, they were afflicted. So, to go back to the proper attitude, let's look at how the apostles responded to that affliction. Last part of verse 12, look there if you would. And we're going to mark these because they're the opposite of what was going on in the Corinthian church. And so we'll just kind of do the same thing we've been doing up till now. Okay, you can find them in your notes, all right? When we are reviled, we bless. When we're verbally abused, loidoreo, which just means speaking mischief, we eulongeo, we eulogize. That's where we get that eulogy word that we have in our English language. That's to speak good things. And the idea there is this. They don't answer back the same way that they're attacked. They don't answer back. When we are verbally abused, speaking mischief, we bless, we eulogize. Paul and Peter had really come to the point where they're really living out 1 Peter 2.20, weren't they? For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? Uh, no credit because you're getting what you deserve. But if when you do what's right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose. You've been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Verse 22, who committed no sin, nor were there any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Have you ever tried to do that? Some of you have, had to be, have gone through this at work not too long ago. That's not easy to do. It's easy to read. 
It's not easy to do. So Paul says when people speak mischief to us, we speak good things. Now, let's get this clear. That doesn't mean that Paul or Peter didn't correct the church or rebuke it as needed. He's even using sarcasm right here to bring them by the Holy Spirit to an opportunity to repent. He just doesn't speak to them the way they spoke to him. Then he goes on and says this, when we are persecuted, he says, we endure. And that word has the idea of desiring to put someone to flight, persecution, to make them run or leave by what's done to them, okay? And that happened a lot, didn't it? And Paul says, when that happens, we hang on and echo me. We bear with it. We bear up under it. Then look at the first part of verse 13. They're afflicted. How do they respond? When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. And a lot of times we hear this word in theological settings, the slander, blasphemos. It's a compound word, blapto, to harm or hurt, and fame, to harm or hurt fame, or harm or hurt your report. So the idea, of course, with blasphemy is to harm or hurt the report of God, the true knowledge of God. And so here, as Paul uses it, it just refers to things that are said that hurt the reputation, defamation of character, in other words. So when we are slandered, our, our character is defamed, and when that happened, they paracolumen, they conciliate. Paraclete, you know, as we talk about the Holy Spirit coming alongside, paracolumen just means that they still tried to work together with the individual. So they were slandered, they tried to conciliate, they still tried to work together, they still tried to have a relationship. And try, of course, is the issue, because some who are this way and constantly slander won't do it. But Paul says when that happens, that's what we do. See, he's giving all the correct responses for the church. He says, you know, when we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we conciliate. When we're reviled, we bless. And so he says then, um, in verse 12, go back there if you would, <clears throat> look at the whole thing together. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. Verse 13, when we are slandered, we try to conciliate. In other words, they met defamation of character with kindness, they met persecution with endurance, and they met slander with blessing. Voluntary humility, that's what it is. Accepting last place. And if they were last here, then they knew there would be first where? Where, beloved? If you're last here, where are you first? In the kingdom. For eternity. Okay? So they understood that, didn't they? Have you ever tried to do that? That's not easy, is it? And if the Corinthians really wanted to rid the church of disunity... The whole issue there, the whole reason why Paul's using sarcasm, the whole reason why he's using the example of his own life, is they're going to have to embrace the same attitude. That's the point Paul's making. He's not just doing this to be mean, okay? He's not just doing this to bring shame on them. We're going to see that in just a minute. He's doing it to teach them a lesson. And he's using Apollos and himself as examples about how you're supposed to behave. Here were the Corinthians, prideful, thinking they'd arrived, thinking they knew some stuff, getting all A's on their personal, report card, rich, reigning, distinguished. And Paul sums up all the world's evaluation of them, what it means to be afflicted. He says, we have become, here it is, and this is just kind of a sad thing to think about. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. That's Paul's summary of how the world views them and perhaps how the Corinthian church was viewing them. And certainly I think we can support that as we dig deeper into the book, particularly in 2 Corinthians. We've become the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. We're viewed as what's been cleaned off of something. In other words, after you clean your grill, the stuff that's left after you cleaned it, the grill's clean, and the stuff that fell into the bottom, that's the stuff. It's the ring around the bathtub when the water goes down. That's it. That's the actual literal meaning of the word, okay? We have become 
the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Nothing's changed, of course. Uh, it's for Paul and the Apollos and the disciples, the same as it was for Jesus. But Paul says, listen, we're not moving far along here. Jesus is the one who was persecuted first. You know, Psalm 22.6 talks about that as it gives a prophecy about Christ. It says this, but I am a worm, not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the peoples. As the psalm was written, he was actually putting the words that Jesus would, uh, would embody as he came to the earth. Isaiah 49.7, again, Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, uh, there's two of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the three, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and its Holy One, to the despised one. And there's the third one, right? So you got Father, you got the Holy One, the Spirit, you got Jesus, to the one abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers. And he says this, this is how he's going to be, okay? He says, kings will see and arise, princes will bow down because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. He's despised, abhorred by the nations, servant of rulers. Isaiah 53, 3, we read this as we go through uh, communion. He was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Sounds very similar, doesn't it, to the things the apostles had to go through. Jesus talked about, as that talked about him, Jesus talked about how it would be for him. In Luke 18, 31, he says this, He took the twelve aside, said to them, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem, and all things which were written through the prophets, which I just gave you a small sample of just a minute ago, about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Verse 32, For he will be hang, handed over to Gentiles, and be mocked, and mistreated, and spit on, and after they have scourged him, they'll kill him, and on the third day he'll rise again. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? Doesn't sound like he's ruling and reigning. Doesn't sound like he's rich and full, does it? Sounds like he's despised and the dregs and all the things that the apostles just got through saying. And Jesus also talked about how it would be for his disciples in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, he says, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If the world hates you, does it hate you? Sure. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world... But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. That's your lot, he says. Peter says, you were made for this. A light persecution you're going through, realize you were made for this. So Paul's saying, if you're ruling, there's something wrong. We're still doing the same things. We're feeling the same things. And if you consider yourself rich spiritually, think about this. Even Paul, with all of his understanding, considered himself as not having arrived yet. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, and I know I'm doing a lot of cross-referencing, but I think this really helps broaden out our understanding of the way Paul's approaching this passage and how he's addressing the church and bringing them under indictment. He talks about himself in Philippians 3.10, and he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul says, that's the main thing for me. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Because he understood what Jesus had said in John 15. He understood Luke 18. He understood Isaiah 53.3. He understood the servant's not greater than the master. That's where he wants to be. 
fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In other words, as those things are clear in my life, not because I'm acting them out, but because that's the actuality of my life, I have proven that what? I'm born again. Not that I've already attained or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Then he addresses the church and he says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching towards what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You're not ruling here. You're not full. You're not rich. You're not distinguished, Paul says. If you're already filled and you're reigning as kings, understand that we're still being despised, Paul says. We're still being considered the substance that's been cleaned off of a filthy object. We take the spot in society that's mocked and rejected because we boldly preach Christ, see? That's it. That was the apostle's example that Paul wanted to point out. We're fools in the world's eyes because of who we speak about. Peter said that we haven't arrived yet. We're we're supposed to be travelers. This isn't our home. Beloved, he says, I urge you, mark this, what did he call them? Aliens and strangers. You're aliens and strangers. You haven't arrived here yet. This is not your kingdom. Because that's the case, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Stay away from fleshliness and pride. It's the same thing that the Corinthian church had a problem with. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, those who are not believers, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, in other words, if you aren't keeping your way excellent, if you've added to your life things that the world has, they're not going to look at you with criticism. But if you do reign in your life, if you're making sure that you're different from the world in the way and the habits that you have and things you're adding to your life, see, then they may slander you as evildoers, but because of your good deeds, as they observe them, Glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, this is really cool, okay? If you've reigned in your life and you've taken some ribbing and you've taken some hard times and some persecution from yourself, uh, to yourself because of what you've done and what you've decided you weren't going to do, when the Lord comes back, if, if we understand this passage correctly, those that regarded you as evildoers, those that thought you were fools, those that thought you were ridiculous, all the stuff that goes along with persecution, will be required to glorify God recognizing that you weren't a fool after all, whether they want to or not. Just like every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is God to the glory of God the Father, they'll also be required to admit that you weren't a fool after all. That they despised you, but they were wrong. And they regarded you as an evildoer, but they were wrong. And they'll glorify God. They'll be required to do it. That's a good thing to look forward to. And the Apostle Paul, of course, in writing to the Corinthians, is dealing with their problems. He's struggling against their weaknesses, their sins, trying to bring them into conformity to the truth of God. They're believers, for the most part, but behaving as if they weren't. They're polarizing the church because they're fleshly and immature and worldly. And it's such an important issue to get over. He even told Titus, listen, in dealing with people who want to be factious, always complaining, stirring up trouble, he said this, Titus 3.10, he says, reject a factious man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. If you're going to keep stirring up trouble, Paul told Titus, listen, when you're a pastor in the church, after you've warned them a couple times, out they go. Because unity is the issue. 
for everything else. If you want to have powerful ministry, there's got to be unity. And there's always people who stir, stir up the problem. Paul says, and he's very zealous about this, see? For the church to walk in unity. And he's very sincere as he writes to them because he wants to lead them through the Holy Spirit and solve the problem. He's serious about it. And that's why he says in verse 14, and this, with this we're going to wrap up this morning. He says this, 1 Corinthians 4, 14, he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul says, I'm not trying to bring shame on you. I'm here to warn you because I love you. And I'm warning you, he says, because that's how you're conducting yourself in the church. And that can't continue. So I'm, he's being direct. He's using direct words. 1 Corinthians 1.10, remember? I exhort you, brethren, he says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no division among you and that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. And when he said that, he didn't actually identify any actual issues that they might have had with Paul or Peter or whatever because it didn't matter. In fact, the fact that they were divided was the only thing that mattered. And because some of the church has been drawn into this polarizing comments, he was able to identify the symptoms, diagnose the disease, and give them the cure. And as he wrapped up the section, he used some sarcasm to really help them identify their attitude of pride. Now, as he moves into the next seven verses, and you can see those, we read them this morning, he's going to appeal to them as a father, as we saw at the end of verse 14. You are, he says, my beloved children. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my, he says, beloved children. And it's a wonderful section. Because while he's been dealing with all their problems and really confronting them about the attitudes and, and their childish behavior, he's also consistently explaining, get this, his relationship to them. And I want to draw them, uh, as you've been with us in the study, these are going to ring with you, okay? And then you'll see what Paul's about. He's always about affirming the relationship that he has with them. He says, I'm saying this because I'm an apostle by the grace of God, chapter 1, remember? Or I'm saying this because I'm a preacher of the gospel. Or I'm saying this because I'm determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. So I'm saying this. I'm saying this because I'm a servant through whom you believed. I'm saying this because I planted and Apollos watered. I'm saying this because I'm not really anything because God causes the growth. I'm saying this because I'm God's fellow worker and you're God's field. I'm saying this because I'm like a wise master builder. I laid the foundation of Christ in you. I'm saying this because I belong to you. I'm saying this because I'm an under rower of Christ. I'm saying this because I'm a house manager of the resources God has given and I want to carry out his orders. And then he gets to verse 15 and he says, and he appeals to them in, this, in another way. He says, I'm saying this because I'm your father through the gospel. You see? So he uses a lot of different ways to describe his ministry to them. And we get all of that. So that not only do we see the problems but we also get to see the many approaches to the solutions to those problems. The minister has lots of hats to wear in a practical application. He approaches the ministry following the biblical model of pastor and teacher and shepherd and overseer. It's all part of the job. And the church has responsibility to respond to the word of God and be stewards of their spiritual gifts, as the four chapters point out, and to all agree and that there be no division among you, that you may be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment, see? And to carry out the works of service in a Christ-honoring way. Because according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, that's where you're equipped, what you're equipped to do. And the more the church does that, and the more the church fills these positions, the better we're doing as a church. But it's all the Lord, isn't it? 
If anything good's happening, it's him. But we have to recognize what's good, don't we? So we carry out works of service in a Christ-honored way, and we're going to get to see another aspect of this in these last seven verses, and we're going to start to see those next week, Lord willing, and finish them up right before Resurrection Sunday. And so we should close out this chapter and kind of see this relationship and this dynamic of Paul and the apostles, the disciples, pastors, interacting, seeing the problem, working with it from different directions, and Paul says, I'm your father in the Lord. So he's appealing to them as his spiritual children. And so that's where we're headed. So you know when we get there, we've finished it, all right? I try to give you some landmarks so you know when are we going to finish this chapter, for crying out loud. So uh, anyway, that's how we're going to finish it. So would you bow with me? Let's, uh, let's close out our time together. <clears throat> Gracious Heavenly Father, we recognize this morning your truth of your word and the truth that's in it for us. We admit Father, of course, that we can't pull all of this out of our hat. We're just not going to be able to turn around and, and when we're verbally abused, blessed, and when we're persecuted and pushed away, uh, hang on. We're going to have to allow your word to dwell in us richly in all wisdom so the Holy Spirit can be at work, bringing our flesh into submission, renewing our minds and our habits. We also admit in doing what we just said isn't optional for those who are called by your name. So we admit that we have to do it. We admit that it's part of our character being formed into the image of Christ. It's part of this sanctification process that you want to be at work doing in us. Really, three different places. Just remember, the Apostle Paul spoke in Ephesians 4. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Same basic topic, he says. I urge you as a prisoner of the Lord, I implore you, walk in the imperative. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Colossians, he says to them, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I pray that you will do that, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Walk in that manner. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Walk in the manner worthy of your destination, Paul says. So, Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to live this life and build on the foundation of Christ of Christ that's been laid in our life as we think back to this judgment seat of Christ coming up this foundation of Christ laid at salvation so as we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord as we walk in a manner worthy of the calling as we walk in a manner worthy of God then we can be careful how we build then with gold and silver and costly stone in obedience to your word with the right motivation and attitude so, so father we just thank you for the good time that we've had sharing together today and the activity of the faithful in worshiping in music and praying and humility and giving sacrificially and ministering in the word together and uh, bending our wills into obedience to it that's the activity of the faithful we did today lord and I, father i pray that you'll take what we heard 
out of our minds and translate it into our pattern of life. Not just another sermon where we heard the words spoken and made no effort to change so that we might build with gold, silver, and costly stone and that we may witness and live as if your son was coming tomorrow. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.